Our text this morning is found in Luke chapter number 2. It's out at 11.55, and I don't want y'all to be too late uh, to, the, uh, to the buffet, so let me jump right in. Luke chapter number 2, verses 21 through 38. We'll say quickly, we'd love to see you this Wednesday night at Potluck. Even if you don't usually come, please join us for a meal. We always love uh, seeing new faces and being able to pray together. Luke chapter number 2, verse number 21 declares... And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time had come for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus uh, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled that marveled what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years, and when she was a virgin, and then uh, as a widow until she was uh, 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the, very, at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, just for a few moments this morning, I want to preach from a very uh, familiar and simple subject title. I want to talk about the journey to Jerusalem. Let's talk about the journey to Jerusalem. Let me pray for us. Father, my heart is full and my heart is thankful that we have an opportunity to be together. I'm thankful that we have an opportunity to get into your word, and I pray that your word will be open to us this morning. God, I thank you that any time we have these moments, it's more than hearing a man, it's more than hearing a simple message, God, but we want to hear the Lord speak. We've read a lot of passages this morning, and we're thankful that we're going to be in your word because any time... Your word is read, God, we believe that your voice is heard. And I pray, God, that even in this sermon, God, even as we continue to study, God, we just simply want to hear your voice. God, we simply want to be transformed by this truth. God, we simply want to be encouraged in our hearts, God. God, it doesn't matter what happened yesterday or last week or even what's going to happen tomorrow. God, allow us in this moment to take full advantage of your presence and allow us, God, to be impacted by your word. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. On last Sunday, when we spoke together, we talked about the journey to joy, how God has designed the Christian life in such a way that we are called to grow in the joy of the Lord. Joy being that deep, subtle confidence that God is in control. And this week, we want to not only talk about the journey to joy, we want to specifically talk about or focus on the journey to Jerusalem, which in this text is essentially a picture of our journey of faith. At this point, Mary and Joseph have been through a lot. Uh, They have had some great tests of faith, and they've had a lot of issues in their life that caused them to trust God at a deeper level. Uh, Mary, for instance, had to trust that God had the ability to make her pregnant. Uh, Joseph had to trust that God uh, was doing something in his wife's life, and he had to resist the urge and the temptation to believe that another man had slept with his wife. They had to trust that God would keep them safe on the journey. They had to trust that receiving Christ would be something that the Lord was going to do from the beginning of, into the end, from this, when their story begins. Until their their story ends, all the way through, you're going to see that they had to trust God at a deeper level. Some of us have begun to believe the lie that in my Christian life, I'm going to trust God and then I'm going to take control. We think that God initiates the relationship based upon trust. And then once we kind of figure this thing out, We can kind of take the will for ourselves. In the text, the story doesn't say they trusted God before the baby came. They trusted God before Jesus entered their life. And then the moment Jesus entered their life, they didn't have to trust him anymore. When you look at the text, when you look at the Christian faith, the text is reminding us that the journey of faith is marked by greater steps of faith and trust. Yes, there are going to be moments where you can celebrate the progression. Yes, there are going to be moments where you can celebrate that you are not where you used to be. But I want to tell somebody this one. I want to encourage you, not fuss at you, that there will never be a time in your life where there are not greater steps of faith to take. There will never be a time in your life where there are not more battles to fight. There will never be a time in your life where Jesus is going to say, Thomas or Andy or Michael or Bob, just hit cruise control. Just slow down on pursuing me. Just slow down on pressing hard into God. There's never going to be a time in your life where Christ enters your life and Christ entering your life does not mean that you're going to have to continue to trust the Lord at a deeper level. It's unfortunate that some of us, some of us, when I say us, I say preachers, have led people to believe that, that Jesus is, is, is kind of like an add-on to your life, right? Like, I got the car, I got the job, I got the spouse, and I'm going to just slap a little Jesus on top of it, and it's going to make it better, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I got, I got my, my life planned out. I know exactly what I'm going to do, where I'm going to live, where I'm going to go, how much money I'm going to make, where I'm going to vacation. I know it all, and I'm going to just slap a little Jesus on the top of it and make it a little bit sweeter. When you think about the Christian life, it's a life that is marked by tremendous trust in the Lord. It is a life that is marked by a journey where you and I will never arrive 
to this place where we can be independent from God. We will no longer have to trust God. For, for me, that's, that's a little discouraging at times because uh, I've said this before and it's true. I, I used to think that, you know, once I hit a certain level spiritually, man, it's going to be easy. Like, for, for those who know me, they know I hate flying, right? I, I, I kind of thought that the Christian life would kind of be like a really bumpy, like, takeoff. Then we just cruise control. No turbulence, like, no problems, no issues. You know, you order some beverage service, you get you a meal, like, it's supposed to be good, right? It's not supposed to be nothing hard. But the more I live, the more I see that the Lord is taking whatever has my attention, and God is saying, I need you to trust me in that area. When you look at the text, Mary and Joseph had received Christ. Mary and Joseph had been obedient to the Lord. Mary and Joseph had done exactly what God had called them to do. And God continues to expect them to take greater steps of faith. That is true for us. I'm so thankful that there are people who are here who have a relationship with Christ. I'm so thankful that there are people who are here who've made significant uh, decisions for the Lord, who've made great steps of faith, who've had significant victories in your life. But I want to encourage you this morning. We can't rest. We can't rest on those victories. We can't rest on our laws. Last night we had a great win in Knoxville. It was great. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, so... Y'all know I like to brag and boast, so you know I was texting people last night from my hometown. I'm just petty like that. But, but we got another game on Saturday. What happened in Knoxville does not determine that we're going to have victory next week. In our Christian life, just because I had significant time with God last week doesn't mean that's going to suffice for this week. Just because I was committed to praying, I was committed to serving last week doesn't mean that that's going to have an impact on my life this week. When we approach the text, the text really gives us a picture of the next step of faith in their journey. We're going to be in Luke for a while, and we're going to continue to see that there's just another step of faith. I'm not going to lie to you. When I was preparing my sermon, I really wanted to skip this portion. Um, I really wanted to just jump to the next uh, part because it was, in my opinion, it's some, it's some better preaching material in the next section. Um, as I was reading, it, it was kind of like some, some details that, that, um, that parents give that nobody cares about. You know how sometimes we post stuff on Facebook and, and we expect people to like it. Nobody cares, right? Nobody cares about what's going on. But when you look at the text, it's not that you're getting some 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 minuscule details about this newborn baby. What you're seeing is there's a, there's a picture of how God blesses them with greater faith as they continue the journey. So first point we're going to see is during the journey, we see the maturity of the parents. Verse 21 says again, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus by the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about Luke 2.52, how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. But before we get to how Jesus grew, we need to make a statement. We need to understand that before we see Jesus growing, we see his parents were growing. Before we see the scriptures speak about how Jesus grew in his faith 
As a man, we need to recognize that before Jesus' faith growing is mentioned, his parents' faith is mentioned. I want you to miss that. The text identifies that his parents were growing in obedience to the Lord. The text mentions that his parents were fulfilling the call of God on their life. The text mentions that the parents were willing to be obedient in the areas that God had called them to be obedient in. It's a reminder for me personally, because I got four kids. Before I want to look at growth in my kid's life, I need to evaluate growth in my personal life. I want my kids to grow. I want my kids to be full of faith. I want my kids to walk with God. I absolutely want that for them. But I should never get to a place in my life where I want more growth for them than I want for myself. Even as a pastor of this church, I cannot want more growth for you personally than I want for myself. I can't want more growth for my spouse than I want for myself. I can't want more more growth for those who I'm discipling than, than I want for myself. We know that Mary and Joseph were growing, and we know that they were following uh, in obedience because the scriptures tell us that they were righteous people. Um, first, we see that Mary and Joseph were, were growing in maturity because they were obedient to God's instruction. Luke one twenty six reminds us that Gabriel told them that God had determined that his name would be Jesus. In Matthew, it tells us that Joseph is a righteous man, and in Matthew one twenty one, uh, God spoke to Joseph as well about the baby being named Jesus. They both heard a message from God, and they were both obedient to God. I want you to think about it from this perspective. Could you imagine them naming the baby something other than Jesus? Could you imagine them not honoring the Lord's request? Could you imagine them shaking their fist at God and doing something different, and then being upset that the child shook his fist at God. Then being upset that the child was not willing to honor God. Then being upset that that the child was not willing to fulfill the mission of God on their life. It's a reminder for all of us that every time the name of Jesus is called, it is a testimony to the maturity and it is a testimony to the faith that the parents possessed. Every single time they called Jesus' name, it was a reminder that they were willing to be obedient to God's promise. Calling uh, his name Jesus was a reminder that God would visit his people. Calling him Jesus was a reminder that God would fulfill his promise. So first we see that they were growing in their relationship with God because they were willing to be obedient in naming the child. But secondly, we know that they were mature and obedient because they were willing to follow the written word of God. Catch this. They responded to the supernatural revelation of the angel, but they also responded to the written word of God. There's sometimes in our lives, uh, personally, where we have a disconnect between what we feel God's saying in our hearts with what God has already spoken in his word. Mary and Joseph have an unusual revelation from an angel, but they also receive the regular revelation from the scripture. I want you to go with me quickly to Leviticus chapter number 12. I want, to see, I want you to see how they are fulfilling the written word. Leviticus 12, verse 1 simply says, and it's on the screen, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, 
If a woman conceives and bears a son, a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as is the time before menstruation. She will be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. So she should not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying is complete. But if she bears a female child, then she should be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, as she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 60 days. Verse 6 is important. And then the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of the meeting a lamb or a year old, a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for sin. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. When you look at the text, Mary and Joseph are following the Old Testament commitment or Old Testament covenant. They are given a timeline to get to Jerusalem, and their faith allowed them to take a, to, to trust that the Lord was going to see them from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Their faith reminded them that the baby belonged to God, so the best thing that they could do was to give their baby back to God. In doing so, they give a model for us, or they give a model for their child concerning what it means to have faith and trust in the Lord. Paul said, because this is super important, when you think about how Mary and Joseph take another step of faith, they are modeling what faith looks like even for Jesus. So the question we got to consider is, as parents, how are we modeling our faith to our children? If you don't have kids, maybe you have them one day, maybe you don't. Put, play, place your community around you, your brothers, your sisters, your classmates. It doesn't matter. How are you modeling your faith for those who are around you? Last week, we talked about how everybody is being poured into doesn't matter. You're either being poured into by good things or bad things. We're all being poured into. The question this week we've got to ask ourselves is, what are we pouring out? Because whatever, you pour in, whatever is being poured into you will one day be poured out. As a godly parent, I must be committed to pouring into my kids spiritually. I've got to be committed to modeling a relationship with my kids spiritually. Parents, we must get this right because if we don't get it right, we have an opportunity to paint a picture of a, of a Christian life that's unattainable or unrealistic or unhealthy. It's easy for us to look at the text and be like, you know what, I'm not like Mary. I'm not perfect. I'm not like, I'm not like uh, Joseph. I'm not like these biblical characters. Like, what do I begin? Like, how do I even start this thing? And if you're feeling like that, I want to encourage you. It's a journey. The Christian life is a journey. The Christian life is a journey where we are growing in grace. The Christian life is a journey that reminds us as long as we have breath in our body, we have an opportunity to repent and confess. Confession allows us to agree with God, and repentance allows us to turn our hearts back to God. Remember, repentance is not just simply turning away from sin. Repentance is turning toward Christ. Confession and repentance... And parenting allows me to agree with God about the standard that God has set. And repentance and parenting holds me accountable that I should live a consistent life 
of pursuing Christ. Even this week, I had to remind myself, Thomas, your, your responsibility as a, as a, as a husband, as a, as a parent, is not to mess up your kids. Like so many times we think about it like, I just don't want to mess them up. Don't want them let them, don't want them let them drink alcohol. Don't want to let them watch bad movies. Don't want to let them curse. Don't want to let them log on to bad sites. I don't, don't want to let them do stuff. And for me, the Christian life has got to be more than not letting my kids do stuff. The Christian life has got to be about the pursuit of Christ and modeling the pursuit of Christ for my kids, being transparent with my kids about how I handle my sin, by confessing my sin, by asking for forgiveness, by dealing with disappointments, by being quick to listen, by being slow to speak, by being slow to be angry. I want to model pursuing Christ by showing the love of Christ. Love not simply being the warm fuzzies, but love meaning I'm making an intentional choice to be patient. I'm making an intentional choice to be kind. I'm making an intentional choice to not envy, to not be prideful, to not be easily offended, to not be easily angered. I'm simply just going through what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about love. Like, I want to model love for my kids because this is an opportunity that God gives me for my life. Once again, the Christian life is not marked by what we don't do, but the Christian life is marked by who God has called you to pursue. So first, during the journey, we see the maturity of the parents. But secondly, during the journey, we see the reality of poverty, the reality of poverty. Verse 24 says, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said of the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you go back to Leviticus, you'll see that they... They, they were called to give a lamb, but they ended up being only able to give a turtle dove because they could not afford the lamb. If you read it in context, the context is telling us that this was a family that was poor. This was a family that was in poverty. This was a family that was not born with a silver spoon. This was a, a family that dealt with economic issues in their life. I, as a pastor, I think it's super important for me to say this. Poverty is not a sin. If you find yourself in a struggle, if we find other people in a struggle financially, that within itself is not a sin. Also, poverty is not a mark of God's disapproval. So many times we think that if people are struggling financially, that God has disproved with them, that God has forgotten about them, that God um, has, has, has done them wrong. But that's not true. Also, poverty in the text does not prevent them from worshiping the Lord. They were poor, but they still made a commitment to honoring God. Poverty does not excuse unrighteousness. They could have said, I'm poor, I can't go to the temple, I can't worship God. No, poverty was not an excuse for them to do what they wanted to do. Poverty should not be shameful. Poverty is not something I should be ashamed of, and poverty does not prevent me from leading other people to Christ. We've got to remember when we see people who are struggling and those who are in poverty, we must remember that Jesus was born in a family with much poverty. If you think about the passage, um, if you have some time this week, I want you to go to Matthew 28. It's a powerful passage. When Jesus is speaking, I want you to focus on verses 31 through 40. It's a passage where Jesus is talking about the least of these. Jesus gives a, a very simple statement. He talks about feeding those and clothing those and those who are hungry and those who are in need. 
tells them, he said, you know what, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And we got to understand that when we see people hurting, when we see people who are in rough situations, how we treat them is ultimately a reflection of how we are committed to Christ. I don't want us to be deceived this morning because whether you're rich or you're in poverty, both of those issues uh, present different tests and trials. That's why Proverbs 30 verse 8 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with food, food that is needful for me. Both of those issues present problems. But both of those issues give us an opportunity to respond in a way that gives us faith or increases our faith. I want to say a word here about materialism because we are in a very wealthy, middle-class church, country area, right? And even as parents, right, we, I feel like we fall victim, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this, that if we don't give our kids everything, we feel like we're failing them, right? Like if I don't, you know, give my kid the best toy, I'm failing them. If I don't have my kid's college fund ready, I'm failing them. If I don't buy my kid a BMW on their 16th birthday, I'm failing them. If I don't I heard one parent say that, you know, they were upset because they couldn't send their kid on a European vacation for graduation. It's like, I'll go. <laughs> like, I mean, this is crazy that sometimes we put this, this tremendous pressure on ourselves. And what I love about the text is Mary and Joseph are in poverty. They don't have a lot of money. But what they do is they operate in such a way where their children will one day treasure the scriptures. They operated in such a way where they were, they were able to model godliness and life. Treasuring Christ is what their kids needed the most. And although they didn't have a lot of money, they had a lifestyle that was committed to the Lord. So during the journey, we see um, the maturity of the parents. We see the reality of poverty. But lastly, we see, the, uh, during the journey, we see the certainty of God's promise. Verse 25 says again, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he had been, as it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death and he had, until he had seen the Lord's Christ. I'm going to just get away from my notes because I'm just like, I'm way over and I just got way, way too much to say. I'm going to say it this way. When you look at the last portion of Scripture, you see a man was devout and faithful to God. He's an old man, but he's still faithful to the Lord. He's an old man, but he's still walking with God. And because he's faithful to the Lord, and because he had, he had been consistent in his relationship with God, the scripture said that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The text tells us very clearly that he was at home, and the Holy Spirit so prompted him that he left home and he went to the temple. He was led by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. I want you to catch the progression of the text here. He was faithful to God, and God made a promise to him that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. That's the consolation part. That's, the, that's what, it's, what, it's, what it's communicating. He's faithful to God. God makes a promise to him, but he's going about his normal, regular day, and he's so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that the Lord speaks to him, and he knows that today is the day where I need to go to the temple. It challenges me because I'm busy, I got a calendar, I got a lot on my plate, I got a lot going on, but am I, am I so sensitive to the Spirit 
that when the Lord speaks to me, I know when to go. When the Lord prompts me to call that person, when the Lord prompts me to ask the question, am I sensitive enough to the Spirit to listen to what the Spirit has to say? The text tells us that he sees the baby, and essentially he says, I can die now. He says, my life is fulfilled because I have seen God's promise. He says, it is good with me. I can die in peace. He says, everything's fine. And I love the text because he doesn't see the baby and make it about him. What he does is he receives the promise, and then the promise leads him to prophesy. The promise leads him to speak more about God. He, he remained faithful and consistent and focused on the Lord. God gave him what he wanted. And God allowed him to fulfill the promise, and that faithfulness, the faithfulness of God increased his faithfulness to God. God had been faithful to him, and it allowed him to be even more faithful to God. We get to the end of the passage, and there's a, a lady in the text who makes some of us uncomfortable, but I love it. There's a lady named Anna. She's a prophetess. She's a preacher. She's out proclaiming the word. She's out boldly speaking to people about the Lord. It's a reminder that we got to make room for women to speak. It's a reminder we got to make room for women to use their gifts. Now, being a prophetess is totally different than being a pastor. We'll talk about that later. But there is a, a, a reality here in the text that there, is, there are women who God uses as spokesmen. You cannot deny that in the text. There are women who God uses to speak. Now, we got to understand that everyone, everyone, has an opportunity to speak for God. Like, you do not have to be a preacher or a reverend or, or an a, a elder or a deacon to speak about what the Lord has done in your life. And you take a woman in the text who has been faithful to God. She was a widower. She went to the temple every day. She was fasting and praying. And when the Lord answered her prayers and when the Lord showed his faithfulness to her, she left the temple and she went out and began to tell other people about Jesus. It's a model for men and women that we should leave here being committed to telling people about Christ. I had to step away because I, if I knew if I kept looking at it, I was going to try to go with my notes. Chris, you can come on up. We're done this morning. I, wanna, I want us to look at our three points of application, and we'll be done this morning. When you look at verses 21 through 38, specifically, we see that this is a journey where they took greater steps in trusting God. So the first thing that we want to commit to this morning is, the first thing we want to collectively pray is, may we be committed to fully trusting God. I don't want you to be in a position in your life where you can say, you know what, man, when I was, when I was back in the day, man, I really trusted God. Man, when I was going through this, I really trusted God. Man, when I was, and it's like our faith is in our, our rearview mirror. God does not desire that for your life. Like, faith is living and active. Faith is something that should always be before us. And no matter where you are, no matter what position God puts you in, I want to encourage you to continue to be fully committed to trusting God. It's not easy, but that is what God has called us to do as Christians. Secondly, may we be committed to fully modeling Christ. Like, we want to show faith. We want to have a model for what it means to pursue the Lord. It's not easy. We want to go off the rails. We want to do our own thing. 
I was going to tell a joke, but it's a serious moment. We, 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 we want to do what honors God. We don't want to do what feels comfortable and easy. We want to do what's going to help bless other people. We want to do what is going to serve as a model for other people. And I want to say this as parents, just specifically to the parents. I, I deal with a lot of college students. I deal with a lot of college students who are not in church anymore. And a consistent theme are the students who are no longer walking with God, the, the students who leave home as Christians and involved in church and get to college and walk away. Here's the consistent thing. My parents didn't take my faith seriously. My parents were one way at church and another way at home. My parents talked a good game, but they weren't really serious about it. And I think that, that young people get to the place where they're like, you know what, rather than just faking it and just going through the motions, I do my own thing. Now, that's not for everybody. Please hear me. I even feel led to say there's a family in our church that's going through a hard moment with their kids. I'm not saying that for every situation. But there are a group of us who have seen our parents play the game. And we get to the point where we say, you know what, when I'm grown, I'm not playing the game. I'm going to do my own thing. So I want to encourage the parents in the room to model faith. I want to encourage the parents in the room, your kids are being poured into every day. You got 18 years of pouring in. Take full advantage of that opportunity. Lastly, may we be committed (coughs) to fully waiting on Christ. One of the most beautiful things about Simeon is this. He was so committed to waiting that when God fulfilled the promise, he said, I'm ready to go. He couldn't say he was ready to go until God fulfilled the promise, but he was willing to wait until God fulfilled the promise. I don't encourage us all to wait on the Lord, to trust him. Just looking out into the congregation, I see people who have significant struggles and significant things on their plate. I encourage you to wait on God. I encourage you to trust the Lord. I want to encourage you that God has not forgotten about you. I want to encourage you that God will never leave you nor forsake you. I want to encourage you that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for allowing me, God, to get into your word. And I pray, God, that you will help us, God, to, to just take more steps of faith, Lord, wherever we are. Help us not get comfortable. Help us to not be complacent. God, but whatever it is, help us to take that next step. And after we take that step, God, help us to take the next step. God, help us to be committed to a life, a journey of following you. God, so at the end of this journey, we'll be able to hear from you. Well done. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.